My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Yolen Bolo Kamara. Black Lives Matter There are 500 years of globally dominant societies behaving as if they did not matter, however. And notwithstanding what many white people in contemporary Canada might claim, it's not a problem that can be dismissed as of the past or just the U.S. It's a problem here, a problem now. On August 9, 2014, a white police officer killed unarmed black teen Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. It's a tragically common occurrence, happening once every 28 hours in the United States, according to an oft-cited statistic. But thanks to the tireless dedication of mostly young black organizers in Ferguson, this time non-black North America has been unable to forget and ignore. And in late November, when a grand jury decided not to indict Brown's killer, protests erupted across the continent and around the world. Though these protests certainly seek the kind of accountability that would show that Brown's life mattered in this specific case, they have also set their sights much more broadly on ending racist police violence in their cities and creating all of the other kinds of change that would flow from an insistence that black lives matter. Yolen Bolo Kamara is a member of the collective of organizers that came together in Toronto under the banner of Black Lives Matter. A student activist and president of the Undergraduate Student Union at University of Toronto, she is very clear that the actions they've organized are not just a response to events in the United States, but to the very similar realities that comprise black experience in Canada. She talks with me about the organizing, the broader context, and the kinds of changes that need to happen in Toronto, in Canada, and globally. We spoke by Skype to phone from Toronto. And note that we recorded this interview the day before the most recent Black Lives Matter action in Toronto, in which hundreds protested in Nathan Phillips Square. My name is Yolen, and I'm one of the organizers with the Black Lives Matter Toronto Coalition. We're a coalition of community organizers, youth, students, activists, who recently come together as a response to organizing in solidarity with what's happening in Ferguson, with the recent decision to not indict the police officer who killed Eric Garner, but also just drawing parallels to some of the systemic issues with police brutality and anti-Black racism that we experience here in Canada as a Black community. I currently work as a student union. I'm a full-time executive, the president of the University of Toronto Student Union. I've been involved in student organizing for the past few years, and that's kind of how I got started. And as I mentioned, not all, but most of us are students, and that's kind of the community that we had and how we came together to put together a response to what's happening. We as a collective, Black Lives Matter Toronto, we came together because we were really concerned and disgusted and disappointed with the recent decision in Ferguson to not indict the white police officer who shot Mike Brown. Mike Brown was a teenager, he was 18 years old, who was walking down the street when 
Apparently, a police officer drove up and told him to move on to the sidewalk. There was some sort of argument, and it ended with the police officer shooting him as he fled. And he was shot 12 rounds. Apparently, he was hit by seven or eight bullets. And he was killed by this police officer, essentially, for walking on the street. Later on, there became like, speculations that the police officer may have recognized him or thought that he had committed a crime in robbing a convenience store. But essentially what happened that we know is that he was walking on the street and a police officer shot him and he was unarmed. And when he was killed, the police left him on the street near to his home for four hours as people walked by. The whole case and like what happened with Mike Brown, I don't think it's a particularly unique case. We know that cases like this happen all the time. There's a statistic that every 20 hours, a black person in the States is killed by a police officer, security guard, or vigilante. And what we've seen is over and over and over again that there's no sense of accountability. There's no justice. In the Mike Brown case, Darren Wilson, the police officer who shot him, there was the recent decision, as I mentioned, to not even indict him. So he wouldn't even be charged for what he did. And so that's why we came together initially. It was out of that collective anger and frustration and a sense that in the States, in Canada, all over the world, that somehow when Black people are killed by police officers and by the state, which happens over and over and over again, that there's no accountability for that. There's been so many cases since Mike Brown. There's been Eric Garner. There's been Anna Jones, a seven-year-old that was killed by a police officer who raided her apartment. There was a Kai Gurley who was just walking down the stairs of his apartment when he was shot. There was Jermaine Carby in Toronto who was killed by a police officer at a routine traffic stop. And so it's just that sense that police can do whatever they want, that they are stopping black people for no reason often in Toronto were three to four times more likely to be stopped as a police to be carded. And you know that with every one of these encounters, there's the possibility of it becoming really violent. So there's a lot there for sure. But I think it was really important for us to really stress and iterate that Black lives do matter, that someone has to be held accountable for all of these deaths and that the state really needs to do better. As I said, we were mostly students, but not all. And we did get together about a week before we had been following a lot of the press coverage and seeing the protests that were happening in Ferguson and elsewhere. And we thought it was really important to show solidarity with organizers in Ferguson and to do something here in Canada as well. And as I mentioned, our parallels to the very real anti-Black racism and police brutality that happens here. So in our discussions, we decided, similar to what was happening in many states in the U.S., that within 24 hours of a no-indictment decision that we would hold a rally here in Toronto. So we decided that about a week before we created a Facebook event. At that time, obviously, we didn't have a sense of when the decision would be. We just knew that it was imminent and it could happen any day. On the day of the decision, there was an announcement. But an announcement about the decision of the jury of whether or not to indict Darren Wilson would be happening that night. So we got together as a collective. There were probably about 15 of us that night. And we watched the prosecuting attorney's speech and announcement about why the jury decided not to indict. And then we started organizing. We stayed at probably most of the night actually putting things together. Again, we didn't have much notice. We were planning a rally for the very next day. 
the Facebook event grew from about three or 400 people to a few thousand overnight. And so we were working around the clock to make sure that everything was prepared, that we had figured out safety issues, accessibility issues, and putting together an itinerary for the rally. It was just a lot of running around, just trying to get things put together, to put together a press release and to get in touch with media and to put the word out there. But I remember there was a lot of scrambling trying to find ASL interpreters for the night of. There was also a lot of discussion as well about how best to approach the rally. Because one of the things that we thought was really important was that we really wanted Black voices to be centered in the discussion. And we wrote a description for the Facebook event that really stressed that we wanted to make sure that, that Black perspectives and people who are victims of anti-Black racism and police brutality who are dealing with this reality on a daily basis were the ones who were speaking to the media, who were taking up the role of organizing and leading the rally on the day of. And so that was one of the things that we thought was really important for us as a collective to make sure that in our discussions that we were making sure to center Black voices and particularly most marginalized within our community. We didn't have much time, so there wasn't much time to argue over small things. We just kind of came together. We didn't all know each other at that point, but we just thought it was really important to do something. And so we were able to work together really effectively on that night of, and we just kind of made a task list and figured out what needed to be done and then set about doing it. We had about 3,000 people attend, which was really amazing and so much more than we had initially expected. I think that with the decision happening the night before, a lot of people really felt that urgency and they wanted to come together and do something about it. We started off with, we acknowledged the land that we were on and we had a singing performance. There was a spoken word performance. We did four and a half minutes of silence in recognition of the four and a half hours that Mike Brown's body was left on the street. And one of the things that I thought was really important and I really liked was we asked the crowd, 3,000 attendees who were there, that the people who were on the edges or on the outskirts of the crowd to come into the center and that the people in the center to move outwards unless they were black and they strike that. And a lot of people did it, not everyone did. And then after, there was a brief discussion about how that was what we wanted our organizing to look like and how it was so important for the most marginalized within our community to be the center of the discussion. And that particularly with a rally and a movement in which we're saying that Black Lives Matter, that the those who should be most centered in that discussion and leading the movement should be Black people and those most marginalized within our community. So I think that a lot of people thought that that was really powerful because I think that we talk a lot about what that means and what the role of allies is and how to make sure that the work that we're doing is centered around the people who need it most. But it was really amazing to have that physical manifestation of the movement that we were trying to build. So I thought that that was really powerful. And I certainly don't want to dwell on this, but there was some frankly, pretty ridiculous mainstream media response to some of the efforts to center black voices and black presence. So just very briefly respond to the way that the mainstream media covered that. In the interviews that we've done, we've been telling the media, especially now, that we don't want to answer questions about that and that we don't want to dwell on that. And I think that because this is a more in-depth interview, I just wanted to highlight that what happened was so problematic and disappointing and it was just kind of the 
synthesis of everything that we were trying to do. I thought it was really interesting in the way that we planned this rally called Black Lives Matter. And throughout all of our discussions and our organizing, we made sure that our voices were central to what we were trying to do. And all we asked was that Black voices and people who are victims of police brutality, uh, police and state violence and anti-Black racism be at the center of these discussions. And what the media decided to do instead was shift the conversation altogether and make it a discussion about how non-Black would-be allies felt about being encouraged not to take up space within that. So I thought that that was really disappointing. It was really interesting that at the protest, and in the coverage of the protest afterwards, they approached a number of people who weren't Black and asked them to do interviews, and they declined. And the media tried so hard to create some sort of story or controversy around it that they filmed these people, saying that they didn't want to be filmed, as opposed to actually focusing on the reason that we were there. Right. The reason that we were there was to remember the lives of Eric Garner, Jermaine Carby, Mike Brown, and Jones, Tamir Rice of countless others, of victims of police brutality and anti-Black racism and to demand justice for them. And we were there very specifically in the context of remembering the death of Mike Brown and the fact that 24 hours before we got together, we heard that the police officer who killed him wasn't going to be held accountable for his actions. And so I thought it was absolutely disgusting that instead the media decided to shift the focus and to attempt to create a controversy instead. In the Canadian context, in the mainstream, certainly, and even in white majority social movement contexts, there often isn't a lot of recognition of anti-Black racism and of the particular role of the state in organizing and perpetuating that. In the Canadian context, it's often dismissed as a U.S. problem. So talk in more detail about how it very much is a Canadian problem and that the organizing here very much is about something that's locally relevant. It isn't just a response to things happening in the United States. It's interesting because as pervasive as racism is in the United States, that for a lot of people, there's an acknowledgement that it exists and that there should be a collective movement to do something about it. But here in Canada, it's very different because there's that myth that racism is no reality here. There are a lot of people that believe that slavery didn't exist here. And a lot of people who aren't aware of Canada's history and the way that the state, that our state essentially exists on stolen Indigenous land and was built through the centuries on the work of people of color. A lot of people don't recognize or understand that history, which continues today as well. We know that Black and Aboriginal youth are way overrepresented in the criminal justice system. We know that Black youth are three to four times more likely than others to be stopped by the police for no reason. And even with the much lauded decrease in carding in Toronto in 2013, the likelihood of Black people being stopped over others has actually increased. We know that, especially in particular areas, that Black youth are stopped all the time for no reason. And as I mentioned, with every encounter with the police, there's always that possibility of what happened to Jermaine Carby. Jermaine Carby was a man who was killed in Brampton at a police traffic stop. 
And so I think it's really important for us collectively, and especially here in Canada, to recognize that we're dealing with the same issues and that anti-Black racism is just as pervasive here and it's maybe a bit more insidious because I think that people are afraid or unwilling often to acknowledge that it's a reality here as well. And for listeners not in the Toronto context who might not have heard of these discussions, tell the listeners a bit more about carding and about the controversy about that and the struggle against that in the last couple of years. Carding is essentially the practice of police stopping individuals on the street and getting their information. They've banned carding for unspecified and future investigations or because of unsupported suspicions. There have been recent changes to the policy that state that Officers can only stop someone for reasons of public safety or to investigate or prevent a specific offense. And so there has been some attempts to kind of change the practice because there was a lot of data that emerged that showed that black youth and original youth and in general youth of color were much more likely to be stopped than anyone else. It essentially is racial profiling police officers stopping black youth on the street for no reason and demanding their information under the pretext of investigations. What is really important for us and what we are demanding is an end to that practice of racial profiling here in the city of Toronto. Tell me what you can to connect this current moment of organizing with histories of resistance by black communities in Toronto. One thing that I thought was really interesting was many of the media outlets that we spoke to wanted to compare it to the Rodney King riots in Toronto. And just a quick interruption to provide context for listeners who aren't familiar with that case. In 1991, Rodney King, an African-American man, was brutally beaten by police in Los Angeles. And that beating happened to be caught on videotape, and it made a huge public impression when that videotape was released. And then a year later, when the police who had beaten King were acquitted of charges related to the incident, there were uprisings in cities across North America, including in Toronto. Media outlets that we spoke to wanted to compare it to the Rodney King riots in Toronto. They wanted to know why the protests that were happening here were so peaceful and what had changed. And they wanted to know whether these issues were still as relevant or whether things were getting better in society. And I think it's important to recognize that over the past few decades, not much has changed, that these issues continue to keep happening and that we express our resistance in different ways. The one thing that I kind of want to focus on is that it's really disappointing that more than 20 years later since the Rodney King riots and decades since what many of our parents and older activists were talking about, that we're still here and we're still talking about the same types of cases of police brutality, of police murdering innocent people and getting away with it that in the past 20 years, not much has changed, but we're continuing to do that work. Tell me a little bit more about the connection between the organizing in Toronto and the broader network of Black Lives Matter organizing. We had a call yesterday in which we connected with one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement in the States. There's been discussion about continuing to build that network and coordinating even further in the future, but 
What was really important for us to recognize and connect over is that anti-black racism is global and it's pervasive. The same issues that we're dealing with here in Toronto are what's happening in Ferguson, in New York, in Chicago, in the UK, elsewhere in the world. And it's really important for us to work together as a movement and that we need to organize a global movement in response to that. And so that's what we're continuing to do and to try to build here in Toronto. And as I mentioned, there's this really disgusting narrative that's come out of it in which our protest, which was deemed peaceful, was compared to some of the riots that happened in the States. And I think it's really important for us to highlight and recognize that people resist in different ways to kind of push back against this narrative that we're facing different issues or that our community is different or better because of the way in which our protests manifested. And I think it's important just generally for us, as I mentioned, to work together because we're dealing with the same issues on a global level. Tell me what you know about what's happening elsewhere in Canada in terms of Black Lives Matter organizing. We've had some connections with folks who are organizing in Ottawa. I know that there was a rally that happened in Calgary. There was one in Western Ontario. I think there were a couple that happened up in BC. And I think it's really important for us to continue to build on those connections and to expand that network and for us to come together here in Canada as well as globally to address these issues. Tell me more about networking locally in Toronto, either that has happened or that you want to happen. What other groups and organizations are out there that you're hoping to build relationships with in this organizing? We've kind of established this solidarity network. And so because a lot of us are student organizers, we've been reaching out to a lot of the unions and campus clubs within the city of Toronto and elsewhere. But also we've been recognizing and acknowledging and supporting a lot of the work that's been done like the campaign for justice for Jimmy and Carby, I think has been really important for us to support. We've endorsed as a group the demands of the Jane and Finch Action Committee, and there's a network to end police violence that we've been connecting with. But essentially, we want to work with anyone who's interested in doing this work. This is obviously something that would require a lot of dialogue and a lot of struggle to reach a real understanding of what it might mean collectively. But in your own opinion, what kinds of changes would it take in Canada, in Toronto, to really have a material recognition that Black Lives Matter? We have a few demands and things that we've been calling for as a collective. One of the things that we're doing at this action that's happening on Saturday. And again, the action that she's referring to here is the one that happened on December 13th, which was the day after this interview was recorded. Is presenting our demands to Toronto City Council. There are a few things that we're calling for. So one is to implement the recommendations of the recently released CAP report. CAP is the Community Assessment of Police Practices. One of the things that that report looks at is the instances of racial profiling here in Toronto and how Black and Aboriginal youth are much more likely to be stopped than any other group. And so we'd like to see an end to those carding practices. We'd like to see the City of Toronto release a statement acknowledging the excessive use of force and the deaths of Michael Brown and Eric Garner. We want to see an acknowledgement, I guess, on a very basic level that white privilege exists 
I thought it was really interesting in the recent mayoral elections here in Toronto where John Tory, who's now our mayor, in an interview that he did, said that he didn't think that white privilege was a reality here in this day and age. We want to see a commitment to undertaking comprehensive research and clear actions, ensuring that people of color in Toronto have equitable access to services. And we want to see a commitment to taking action to ensure that Black people aren't subject to disproportionate policing, surveillance, and punitive action by Toronto Police Services. And I think that all of these issues that we're talking about in terms of accountability from our municipal government and action taken by the police to put an end to the racist practice of carding are really important to understanding that Black Lives Matter and to taking steps towards ending some of the issues that are faced by Black folks here in Canada. I think what's been really important for us just generally is seeing that in our justice system, police officers and prosecutors tend to be assumed innocent and they're given the benefit of the doubt while Black people are seen to be criminals or violent or threatening. And that was exactly what happened in the recent decision, again, to not indict the police officer who killed Eric Greiner. For people who aren't familiar, Eric Greiner was a man who was essentially strangled to death by a police officer on the street. And just one more quick interruption to add that the killing of Eric Garner happened in New York City. He had broken up a fight and was approached by the police shortly afterwards. And they essentially wrestled him to the ground and put him in a chokehold and he died. And his death was ruled a homicide by the city medical examiner. There was a decision to not indict the police officer who killed him, despite the fact that all of this was on video. So it was just another example of the ways in which the police tend to operate with almost impunity. Despite the fact that it was so clear that he died as a direct result of unnecessary and completely unjustifiable police violence, there's still the narrative out there that it was somehow his fault that he was resisting arrest, that the police officer didn't do anything wrong. And again, I want to bring up the case of Jermaine Carvey, who was killed by a police officer at a routine traffic stop here in Toronto. And there's an investigation apparently that's still continuing. His family doesn't even know who killed him. They don't know why he was stopped. None of that information has been released. What's your sense of where things will be going with the Black Lives Matter organizing in Toronto in the kind of medium term over the next few months? We want to continue to organize actions to bring people together in Toronto who want to do something about anti-Black racism and police brutality. We want to continue to draw parallels to police violence and racism here in Canada. So I think that we'll probably see a few more actions. We're going to continue to connect with Black Lives Matter with the founders in the United States. We want to continue to reach out to other groups here in Toronto who are doing the same work in across Canada and to grow of movement and to demand justice for Jermaine Carby, for Meg Brown, for Eric Garner, for all the victims of police brutality and state violence here in Canada, in the States, and all over the world. You have been listening to my interview with Yolene Bolo Kamara, an organizer with Black Lives Matter in Toronto. To learn more about their work, search for Black Lives Matter Toronto on Facebook and Twitter. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, 
or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.